And so as we've transitioned into the summer, we've been exploring an ancient statement of faith on Sundays called the Apostles' Creed. This creed was not actually authored by the apostles, just so you know, but it has been professed by Christians across the globe for at least 1,500 years. Some even date earlier versions back to the second century. Now, we've mentioned the creed, it doesn't have authority in and of itself. It is not equal to Scripture by any means. It simply serves as a guide outlining core doctrines or core affirmations for people of the Christian faith. This summer, we're exploring some of those core doctrines. And today, we're reflecting on what it means to affirm God as maker of heaven and earth. Now, I know many Christians, as we consider God as maker, we want to focus on when God created or how God created. I don't want to say those are unimportant questions, but in the creed, we are declaring who and what. Who, God, and what, maker of heaven and earth. Many of the how and when questions are beyond the scope of the creed, and therefore beyond the scope of this sermon. In focusing on the what and who, we will wrestle with questions like, what does it matter for us to affirm God as maker? How does this change and transform the way we live? To help us understand why these questions matter, I want us to consider for a moment the iPhone and the creative genius of Apple and a man named Steve Jobs. Why was the iPhone created? What does it matter? If we don't understand the answers to those questions, we may end up misusing what this brilliant object was designed for. We might never turn it on and simply use it as a paperweight or a type of object to toss back and forth or maybe even to throw at someone. Those would be misuses, gross misuses. I would say expensive misuses. In addition to misusing, we might also miss out, reducing it only, only to a phone to call people, not recognizing how it works as a camera, or how it allows us to download apps, to take notes, to help people like me remember things I'm going to forget five seconds later, or how it helps us stay connected through texting and social media. Now, engaging those uses, that could become a way to misuse the iPhone. The designers of the iPhone designed it to make users more efficient and more effective, not to consume the life of the user. Uses can become misuses and distort the design. But bottom line, by not understanding the design, we would miss out or misuse what it was designed for. So what does it matter for us to profess God as maker? What are the words of the creed inviting us to understand and to experience To understand answers to these questions, we're going to explore the very first chapter in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. That word Genesis means beginnings or origins. 
And as we explore that chapter, we're going to find God revealing himself as maker of heaven and earth. When we properly understand the design, it produces dependence and delight. So our big idea this morning is professing God as maker produces dependence and delight. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your iPhone, I guess another smartphone would work too. Go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to make some observations in the text and then consider what it means to affirm or reject professing God as maker. We'll build out an understanding of dependence first, then talk about delight, and finally explore some connection between the two. Let's begin with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first sentence in Genesis, which again is the very first sentence in the Bible, communicates God as the position of primary actor, which means this book is not primarily about you or about me. It's not even primarily about the church. This book has much to say about you and has much to say about me and it has much to say about God's people. But this book of the Bible is first and foremost about God. It starts with him. So in the same way, the design and the work of the creation of the iPhone is rooted and connected to designers at Apple. The existence of creation is rooted in God. So to understand the existence of creation or the meaning of creation or the purpose of creation, we look to God. Creation is dependent on him in this way. And beyond that, this God engaged in the act of creation, going back to what is referenced earlier in the creed, what was preached on last week, this creator has almighty power. The Hebrew word used here for create is bara. It communicates an idea of effortless creation. Theologians refer to what Genesis 1 is describing as ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. We understand out of nothing because there is no reference to source material. Hebrews chapter 11 says, God's people understand what was created was made from things that are not visible. So this act of creation is different from when you and I create something. Take a birthday cake. Or when someone in our church, oh, I don't know, like Ryan Mock creates some new flavor of ice cream, which I have yet to experience. Or when we create something as simple as a paper airplane, we need source substances. Genesis 1 reveals God does not. This creator is not dependent on anything. Here's verses 2 and 3. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The source of creation was not a prior substance, but rather God's word. God spoke, and creation happened. 
Genesis 1 details acts of creation using the language, and God said, over and over and over again. God's word created the oceans and the clouds, the land and the sea, the sun and the moon, the plants and the animals, a man and a woman. So creation is not only dependent on God because God is the primary actor, but also because God's word, God's power that serves as the source of what is made. Further, beyond God's power being the source of what is made, the designer of what is made determines purpose. In the same way, the function and form of the iPhone is dependent on its creator to determine design purpose, so is the function and form of plants and animals, and the sun and the moon, and the land and the seas, and you and I. The purpose of creation is determined by the maker. Genesis 1 provides insight to the form and function of creation, and specifically what man and woman are designed for in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Man and woman are dependent on God because God is primary, because his word and power are the source for their existence, because he is the one who determines form and function, and, and, because they are made to image him. This plays out in how they rule and reign and function on the earth. How they rule, how they function does not point to self or point to their own glory. The purpose of man and woman is to point to their maker, which means we look at how God reveals himself in the scriptures to understand what it means to function as man and woman, to best give him glory and to bear his image. So when I profess God as maker, I affirm dependence. I reject a creed, I am my own maker. I express dependence on the Lord to understand my meaning and my purpose. I know my existence is not for me to define. I am dependent on God to understand my design and my form and my function. And more than that, when I profess God as maker of heaven and earth, I reject autonomy and self-reliance. I reject a mindset that I function independently from the rest of creation in ways that are detached. I affirm not only am I dependent on God and God's word, I am dependent on what God has made. Because I have limits. I am not God. I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need to be in relationship with others. I need to be in right relationship with creation. So I look to the Lord and what he has made to provide for those needs. And I look to the Lord to understand how to rightly relate to creation, to food, to sleep, to work, to rest, to nature, to sex, to how I relate to others or to self or to my sexuality. 
Of course, as we relate to creation, rather than live in dependence on the maker, we can displace that dependence. Things like food or sleep or work or rest or sex or relationships with others, they can become ultimate. You may be familiar with an expression, making good things into God things. When this happens, a person becomes dependent on things that are made, not just as a source of nourishment pointing to the maker, but what determines ultimate meaning and purpose in life. And when that happens, our relationship with such created things consumes us. The pursuit of those things determines how we live day to day. If we get enough, we are content and satisfied, at least briefly. If we do not get enough, we despair. We are anxious and fearful. Rather than experiencing a healthy dependence on creation, we make unhealthy demands. The relationship becomes something it was not designed to be. Displaced dependence destroys. It destroys us, it destroys others, and it has the potential to destroy creation. So in professing God as maker, I acknowledge there is a particular design for how I relate to creation. Made things are made things. They are not God things. So professing God as maker of heaven and earth naturally means you are dependent. God holds the primary position in your life. You are dependent on his word as the source of life and meaning and purpose. I think that is clear. But I said professing God as maker produces dependence and delight. Where does that word delight come from? So one of the words repeated in Genesis 1 that Jen read earlier it's repeated over and over and over again, is the word good. Chapter 1 is describing how God delights in his creation. The language, God saw that it was good, is repeated in verse 4. 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31 in various forms after referencing the creation of light and darkness, the land and oceans, the stars and the moon, man and woman, the text is telling us God delights in what has been made. And Genesis 1 not only communicates words of delight, it is also doing it through its structure and form. Genesis 1 reads like poetry. It is structured very differently from the rest of the book. Lots of repetitive phrases. Then God said, then God said, then God said, it was good, it was good, it was good. What is created is typically some type of pair. Light and darkness, day and night, water in the heavens and water on the earth, the seas and the land, plants and animals, man and woman. These coupled pairs are characteristic of elegant language found in a poem. Genesis 1 reads like a sonnet. It is not like reading a newspaper article or reading something you'd find in a history book or hear at a science lecture. The structure of the text communicates joy and pleasure. 
When we affirm God as maker of the heavens and the earth, we are affirming what has been made is to be delighted in. Because God delights in what has been made. As God's people have professed God as maker of heaven, the heavens and the earth through the centuries, one of the core doctrines or beliefs or alternatives to Christianity being rejected is something called Gnosticism. This is a belief that creation or the material world is a bad thing. The physical body is something to be freed from rather than enjoyed. So we can get on with the business of real things rooted in spirituality. By affirming God as maker of the heavens and the earth, Gnosticism is rejected. We affirm the material world is good. Living out life in our physical bodies, that's a good life. Now in our day and time, we don't outright affirm doctrines of Gnosticism. I, I never hear anyone tell me they are talking to a Gnostic. But we do engage subtle forms of it today. People come to a place ordinary life in the body is viewed as mundane and boring and insufficient. It's something to be rejected as subpar or less than. For example, mission trips to Africa to go rescue orphans. That's good. Changing a kid's diaper, that's less than. Preaching a sermon, that's a good thing. Slowing down and engaging a neighbor in conversation, that's subpar. Trips to the ocean are necessary to experience what it means to be human. But if I'm limited in my travels because of where I live or how much money I have, if I can only take walks around the park, my existence is mundane and boring. In his book, You Are Not Your Own, Alan Noble describes this kind of mindset when it comes to how we let off steam. Things like reading poetry, that's good. But watching a, a well-made sitcom, that's less than or bad. We have a ranked order that is unbiblical in how we relate to creation. Here's Noble. When I'm exhausted from working and my kids are getting into fights and the AC unit breaks in the middle of summer, it is a good thing to ease my anxiety by making a pun on Twitter. It is pleasant to laugh at a well-made sitcom with my wife after the kids go to bed. It's even good to spend 15 minutes coordinating my socks and pocket squares. I don't know what pocket squares are. <laughs> Some methods of coping are inherently sinful. Some are self-destructive and some are addicted, but some of them are just less good choices. Not bad choices, but as methods of coping, some of them are less good. If I were a better man, more spiritually and intellectually mature, maybe I'd find comfort in poetry, prayer, contemplation, and walks in nature. Sometimes I do. But this society is brutal, and there is no shame in finding joy in simple pleasures that ease the burdens we carry, 
even if those pleasures are less good. We may not be Gnostics, but, but for many, oftentimes there is a hierarchy, a ranking in our minds of how we approach God's good design. If we are not doing what is extraordinary, if we are not doing something really spiritual, if we are not doing something super sensational, if we are not engaged in the best good things, well, then we have nothing to delight in. Such a mindset is inconsistent with belief in a maker of heaven and earth who delights in all that he has made. So taking a walk around the neighborhood, having a drink with a friend, playing on the carpet with a two-year-old, taking time to clean up after a meal, engaging in an honest day's wages, these are things your God delights in. Understanding what it means to profess God as maker of heaven and earth produces delight. Now I want to connect these two words for a moment because I think we can see those words dependence and delight as somewhat disconnected. We know we've been made, so we are dependent. Since God delights in his creation, we delight in creation. We could think of those two things as separate from one another. I don't know about you, but I really dislike being dependent. What Genesis 1, what professing God as maker of the heavens and the earth, what scripture beyond Genesis 1 is inviting us into is not a dependence that we dislike, but a dependence rooted in delight. A delighted dependence, if you will. A delighted dependence in our maker and a delighted dependence in how we relate to all he has made. At the very least, the very least, because God delights in creation, because we bear his image, as we relate to creation, we image God. Our dependence on creation should be expressed with delight. But beyond being an image bearer of God, serving as the foundation for this delight, as dependent individuals who look to our maker to understand purpose and design, we understand how much we are delighted in. In Genesis 1, the making of the heavens and the earth is described as progressing from things more basic to more complex. And the language of God delighting in his creation changes from God saw that it was good to God saying in the end, in verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Only is his delight expressed as very good after making a man and a woman. The crown of God's delight in creation is making men and women. This is how God views you and I. I've been reading a book from Tish Harrison Warren called Liturgy of the Ordinary. 
And in it, she describes a practice of prayer in the Anglican tradition when someone moves into a new home. The, the home is prayed over by a priest. A priest she knows named Peter was describing to her how the prayer in the bathroom of all places stands out. Listen in. He anoints the bathroom mirror with oil and prays that when people look into it, they would see themselves as beloved images of God. He prays that they would not relate to their bodies with categories the world gives them, but instead, according to the truth of who they are in Christ. It's easy to look into the mirror and take stock of all that we feel is lacking or wrong about our bodies. Instead, we must learn the habit of beholding our bodies as a gift and learn to delight in the body God has made for us, that God loves and that God will one day redeem and make whole. Peter told me that when he prays over the bathroom mirror, he has noticed fathers of young girls begin to cry. They long for their daughters to see themselves as God sees them. This is a picture of delighted dependence, understanding the value we have before the Lord in contrast to the value the world gives us. Do you understand the delight of the maker of the heavens and the earth? How the God of the universe delights in you as the crown of his creation. Understanding you are delighted in roots us in a disposition of delighted dependence. How is such a disposition lived out? Let's get back to Genesis 1, verses 28 through 30. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Delighted dependence is expressed by experiencing and enjoying God's creation through acts of eating and drinking and raising children, through making our neighborhoods and communities better. As we seek to subdue the earth, to, to be part of creating or enhancing or developing things that make life better, protecting and defending others, improving the health and wellness of others, helping people experience relationship in deeper ways, helping others understand what it means to be human and to step into humanity. Delighted dependence is certainly not laziness, using the creation for personal glory and gain, but it does play out in leisure. Knowing the work of creation, the work of providing, the work of redemption, that is God's work. We get to be part of it, but it is something we join in rather than something we author or are responsible for. Experiencing delighted dependence 
will certainly play out in how we relate to self and how we relate to creation. But rather than than a delighted dependence, many of us are prone to a distracted dependence. Jesus references such a mindset in the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Rather than delighted dependence, in distracted dependence, we experience anxiety and worry. We do not trust in God's provision. We cling to what has been made, whether that is our home or our money or our kids or our relationships. In addressing this disposition, Jesus connects a dot to a lack of belief in God being almighty. Do we believe and trust in his power? Or do we trust in our own? When we trust in our own power and our own provision, which certainly has limits, it produces worry, causing us to fret and fear. Jesus helps us understand a distracted dependence rather than a delighted dependence results from lack of belief in God's power as almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But distracted dependence can also be the result of rejecting or running from the maker of heaven and earth of looking to created things for refuge rather than looking to the creator. Genesis chapter 4 describes how a man named Cain murders his brother Abel. And afterwards, in grace, the Lord marks him so others would not kill him in revenge. But the text tells us, Rather than function in dependence of the Lord, relying on that mark, relying on what God provided, Cain departs from the Lord's presence to find refuge in a city. I think many of us can identify with this mindset. When we're uncomfortable, when we feel threatened, when we experience anxiety and fear, rather than find refuge in our maker, we turn to created things. We look to them for rescue. When created things like iPhones, like binging on Netflix, like food or substances or sleep become where we find refuge and rescue, we affirm something other than who we were made to be. If you take time to observe social settings, one of the things you'll notice is how quickly people in the presence of others, rather than focus on the individual or individuals in front of him or her, become distracted by focusing on a phone. You see this at a restaurant. You see this at parties. I see this at gospel community gatherings. It used to be the newspaper or a magazine. My dad was distracted by TV and reading the TV guide. The target of this critique is not the smartphone. But I think the smartphone has made how we look to created things for refuge in the midst of discomfort more clear. When created things become where we look to find refuge and rescue, we affirm something other than who we were made to be. So the gardeners recently took a camping trip into a national park, and the campground we stayed at didn't have access to electricity or Verizon cell coverage. 
My wife will tell you we didn't even have access to showers. Can you believe places like this exist in 2022? So as I'm making my morning coffee with boiling water rather than a coffee maker, that act of waiting for water to boil, of exercising dependence, it messes with me. Normally when I wait, I distract myself with technology. I find refuge on my phone and access the news or a social media feed. With no cell coverage, I was forced to not be distracted. And I wouldn't say it was a delighted dependence. <laughs> but as I continued, I started to hear the birds. I started to feel a light breeze. I noticed how some of the leaves and trees were shaped. I thought about my kids and how blessed I am with each of the ways they have been uniquely formed. Professing God as maker of heaven and earth will sometimes mean we reject practice not running to created things as a refuge. We'll, we'll, it doesn't mean we have to go to campgrounds. Good news for you all. You can do this in other ways, but there will be times we intentionally disconnect from created things to find refuge in our maker. Think about the ways you relate to God and his creation. Is it a delighted dependence? Or is it something else? Do you make good things God things? Is your displaced dependence on created things destroying you and destroying your relationships with others? Do you recognize a disposition of distracted dependence? Does you needing to provide for yourself with constant activity or experiencing fear and anxiety indicate you affirm you are your own maker? Does you running to created things rather than the creator indicate you find refuge in created things? When we profess God as maker of heaven and earth, we will be confronted with sin and unbelief. Yet if you'll recall from the first sermon in the series, what I believe is not about what I have done or what I have failed to do. There is no I in what I believe. What I believe in is what God has done. And here's what we know. When the crown of creation rejected God's rule and reign and rejected him as maker of heaven and earth, God remained committed to his creation. When you and I, rather than live in dependent ways, tried to live independently and autonomously, when you and I, rather than live in ways that delight in creation, missed out and misused it, God did not abandon his creation. Instead, he wrote himself into the story of creation. Because he loved the crown of his creation so much, he sent his son into it. And God, in the person of Jesus, took on the form of the made world. He took on what was created, physical flesh. He came near. In taking on physical flesh, he took on less good things that we often think about as ordinary and mundane. Fixing his messy hair. Taking a bath 
preparing a meal to eat, constructing tables. Jesus experienced the limitations of being dependent. He was exhausted. He was hungry. Rather than distance himself from a rebellious creation, God sent his son to redeem it and deliver it, to sacrifice himself for it. So the crown of his creation would be free again to delight in it and to live in true dependence. So as people who bear the image of our creator, as people who are growing into the image of our savior, as we profess God as maker, may we experience the dependence and delight that Jesus came to redeem.